Thanks, Dave. Yeah, it's so good to be back. This is home in so many ways, uh, and one that I've, you know, been absent from uh, for a while as, we, as we've done this work and as it's picked up, but it's just really good to be back, so good to see uh, familiar faces. Um, we're in Advent, as you can see by the lit candles and the red and green uh, around, and, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that. This is, this is an Advent sermon within an Advent series, even though we're in what would seem like very untraditional Advent stories, um, if you're just thinking about last week, and then if you have an idea of, of where we're going in the rest of the series, they're, they're very untraditional Advent stories. They don't seem like Christmas stories, but we're within this season of Advent. And I've been thinking about seasons. Um, how many of you have a Christmas tree by now? Okay, good, most people. We got our Christmas tree up sooner than we ever have this year, and it took us about four days to put anything on it, but we got the Christmas tree up. And so, we, you know, we do these things around this season that, that build meaning in the season. And I would say that they don't even just build meaning, they build experience within the season. You know, we, we think about Christmas and we say things like, um, you know, there's Christmas cheer, right? There's Christmas joy. There's Christmas spirit. And what I think we're doing, and I say we, this is just sort of society and culture, what we're doing is we're... <laughs> We're trying to get to, I'm calling it another plane of Christmas consciousness as we go throughout the season. Do you kind of know what I mean? Like, think about the movies we watch, you know, the, the, the classic Christmas movies of all time are these movies where the, really the narrative arc of the movie is these characters trying to sort of get themselves to this other plane of Christmas consciousness. And that's really the goal of all the things we do within this season of, of Christmas and the season of Advent. Um, we could replace another plane of Christmas consciousness with another plane of Christian consciousness because we do the same thing in the church. Um, we, we desire and deeply um, yearn for an experience each Christmas of, of getting somewhere, of kind of getting to this other level um, that we deeply feel and know that we, we want and we need. The word Advent, as you know, we probably say at one point, uh, or another every year when we preach through Advent. The word Advent means coming, or l- really literally, it's, a, it's kind of a word picture of an inbreaking. Think of the, the shepherds out in the fields watching their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, right? The glory of the Lord shone around them. The, the Greek words there are really the same words that Advent means, an, an inbreaking of light. And so we get this, again, this picture of we're in our kind of normal consciousness, and something from the outside comes in to kind of wake us up. And that's certainly what we hope, because Advent, as Dave talked about last week, Advent really is all about hope. And whether we know it or not, it, it, the Advent is the hope that what we see now isn't actually what's awaiting us, right? Like, that, that's really what the hope is, is that what we have now, what we see now, what we experience now, the way things are now isn't the way things are going to be. That's, that's, that's what we believe that Advent teaches us. Because, yes, we look back in Advent, and we look back to the coming of Jesus, but we look back to the coming of Jesus because of what that means for our future. So we are hoping, we are awaiting something different coming in. And I think, I would, I would imagine, I would guess that that, even for non-believers, is the underlying drama of our lives that are, that, that's wanting, that's you know, producing this want and desire to get to this other plane of Christmas consciousness. 
that we want to get to this different place. A guy named Fred Beekner says this, What is coming upon the world is the light of the world. Right? Coming, right? What is coming upon the world is the light of the world. It is Christ. That is the comfort of it. The challenge of it is that it hasn't come yet. Only the hope for it has come. Only the longing for it. In the meantime, we're in the dark. And the dark, God knows, is also in us. We watch and we wait for a holiness to heal us and hallow us, to liberate us from the dark. Advent is like the hush in a theater just before the curtain rises. It's like the hazy ring around the winter moon that means the coming of snow, which will turn the night to silver soon. But for the time being, our time, darkness is where we are. Now, he's really hitting the heavy side of it there. I would say darkness is where we are and light. But we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting for things to be not the way they are now. And so Advent is so pertinent. In fact, I would argue, and and this is what I hope my goal would be for this sermon this morning, my hope and my goal is that you would come to realize that the story of Advent is the story of every day. And that the story of Advent for our character is your story. And it doesn't just happen from December 1st to December 31st. It happens every single day because Advent is the story of all history waiting and hoping for the Lord to unveil and, and, and fully realize the work that he's doing in us is every step of every day throughout history. It is the cosmic story. It is the entire story of human history because it's a story of hope. It's a story of slow-growing, slow-opening hope like a flower. I love that our Advent candle is very Easterish. I think that, that, that flower you see up there is a beautiful picture of Advent. It's the slowly unfurling of a hope that we are waiting for that we haven't fully realized yet. Because now darkness, but now also hope and light. So God is the great storyteller, and history is the story that he's telling. And it's not just a story that happens at Advent. It's a story that happens every year. From the Garden of Eden to the city in Revelation that Dave read from, God is writing a story of pursuit and redemption and new creation. And that right there, I think, is why the Gospel of Matthew starts off with the genealogy. And why we've chosen this year to pick the genealogy of Matthew as our Advent text to keep coming back to. Because what is a genealogy? It's a family tree. You could say it's a family flower. It's growing up, this, this, this family tree of, of human history is growing up out of the seed of Adam and Eve, and each and every name in that genealogy is the tree growing a little larger, right? The, the flower unfurling a little bit more. God is unfolding his story of redemption with every new name, like every new leaf on that tree. And so this Advent, we're looking at just four of those names, just kind of four of those leaves on this unfolding, growing tree of human history. And these four names that we're looking at, this, this four-part series of Advent, are, they're, they're people that are major stories within the overarching story of hope and pursuit and redemption of God. And you, when you read these stories, what's incredible is you, you realize that not every one of these leaves is very green, right? Not, not every one of these leaves even feels like the tree's growing. In fact, some of these leaves, some of these characters that we read about in this genealogy are actually stories where it maybe feels like the tree is being pruned more than it's growing. Um, 
Think about the sermon you heard last week and the story of Tamar. That woman is one of those leaves in the unfolding story of God's redemption. And yet that story is full of darkness. It's full of brokenness. It feels like the tree is getting more pruned than it is growing. But we know that that's how trees grow, right? So if Christmas tells us anything, if these names that we're looking at tell us anything, it tells us that God's story of hope is not actually dependent on how we feel or, or even how it looks like any one of our particular stories is going. When our stories look more like death than new life, God's story of hope is still being written, and not in spite of us, but through us. Not in spite of that death or those feelings of death, but through those. Not in spite of pain, but through our pain. God used even broken stories like last week and in many ways the story this week to bring about the birth of his son, which in turn brought the redemption of all of our stories, right? So Rahab. Rahab is one of the leaves on that tree. I'm not going to read the genealogy for you, um, but she is mentioned there. It says Rahab, uh, who was the mother of Boaz, which interestingly we know will be leading into our next story next week because Boaz is the man uh, who ends up marrying Ruth, who will be our next character. But we're talking about Rahab this morning, and I think for two reasons. I want to give you a little bit of the historical backstory of Rahab. I want to tell you a little bit, just to start, about the, the early years of this tree as it's growing and as we see this particular character of Rahab come up. Like, what, what is the story of human history, the story of hope that God has been writing to lead us to Rahab? And I think that will help us understand the significance of Rahab's story. It's also going to underline this point that God is a storyteller, that he is writing this story and has written your and my stories into it. And he is, tearing, he is telling one overall arching narrative. So Rahab's story, we would actually believe, you know, it begins, obviously, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Okay, God creates humans. He creates human history, and they grow, and they seem to be flourishing. And then, of course, everything falls apart. Okay, from that moment of the fall in the Garden of Eden is when the beginning of God's story of redemption really starts. So God ends up calling this guy named Abraham. Yeah, y'all, y'all have heard of Abraham. Um, calls him out of a foreign land and tells him, hey, I want you to come. I want you to, to move to this new land that I'm going to give you. And guess what? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you with offspring that will outnumber the stars of the sky, right? He says, I'm going to bless you with a nation that will outnumber the, the grains of sand on the seashore. And the only problem is Abraham's already over 100 years old, and he has no children. So it's laughable. God's story of redemption is laughable at this point, because this man doesn't, he can't even remotely imagine how, you know, he and his 100-year-old wife are ever going to produce this or make good on this promise that the Lord made to them. And in Romans 14, it says, Abraham hoped against hope that he would become the father of many nations. He hoped against hope. Okay, that's that, that's that image of Advent, right? I'm hoping against the hope that I don't have right now. I'm hoping against all odds, looking at my situation. But of course, we know that God gives Abraham Isaac. And then Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has a son named Joseph and 11 other sons. And I think Dave mentioned this in a sermon last week. They were great guys because they threw their brother Joseph in a pit, hoping that animals would eat him. And then they decided, well, we better cash out on you know, this guy, and so we'll sell him as a slave. Really sounds like God's story of redemption is, is working, right? Moving, moving along great at this point. 
Joseph and his uh, 11 brothers, all a mess. And then they grow into this great nation, but then they become slaves. And that's kind of the next stage in this story. And we were studying this uh, when we were going through the book of Exodus, that the Israelite people, this great nation God had promised Abraham, are now slaves in Egypt. They don't have a land. They don't, they don't seem to have anything that God has promised. And then God sends another person named Moses. He tells him, take these people out of slavery and I will give you a land. Moses is like, yeah, I heard that one before. It's what our people have been saying for hundreds of years. And so Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt. He, he takes them through the desert. And we didn't get to cover that part of Exodus, but it's incredible. They don't have any water. They don't have any food. They're, they're thousands, hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of people wandering in circles in the desert. The laughingstock of all the nations around them. And they're going, Lord, you're going to give us a land? You're going to make our name great? And so the Lord takes them through many roundabout ways to the edge of the promised land. And he raises up Joshua and he tells them, hey, go into the promised land and take this land. And they're afraid. So they refuse. The, the story that happens in many ways right before the story that we're about to read in the story of Rahab is the people of Israel coming to the edge of the gift that the Lord had promised them and saying, we can't do it. We're too afraid. And he says, okay, then go back in the desert and I'm going to wait till all of you die and all new people are living and then I'll let you in. They're literally at the edge of realizing the promises of God. And it, sound, and it seems like, and in many ways it's true, they get thrown all the way back. And they have to go through all of it again. So where we're at in our story of Rahab is the people of Israel have had this entire history that they probably don't believe is supporting the God who they follow or the promises that he's made to them. That if they look back on their life, and I would encourage you to look back on your life right now, there's many things in their story that they, that they would say, this doesn't support God, you being the God you say you are, and this doesn't support your promises actually coming true to me. And yet God says, here's the land. And they begin to step in faith into the land, and this is where our story of Rahab picks up. If you want to throw it on the screen. This is Joshua chapter 2. Okay, Joshua, they're on the edge of the promised land, and it says, Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, which in fact was the very same camp that they were in 40 years ago when they tried to go into the promised land, and they wouldn't do it, and they had to go back. So they're back literally in the exact same place as they were, and now everyone's dead who was alive at that time, and it's a whole new group of people except for Joshua. So he sends two spies, and he says, go, look over the land, especially Jericho. So the spies went, and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. All kinds of questions, right? Rahab, uh, like many people in her trade at the time, would have run a inn slash brothel. And it would have been a place where all travelers would come. It would have been a place where people would just stay for the night to get a room. It was a place where all the gossip in the town was happening. So it was a phenomenal place believe it or not, for these spies to go and check out this city, to scope out this city. So they're doing their job. They go, they, they stay in this inn or this brothel of this prostitute named Rahab. And the king of Jericho was told, look, these must have been terrible spies. Some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because you've come to spy out the whole land. 
We got lots of questions. We have no idea why the king knew or how the king knew. The narrator clearly doesn't think those details are the most important part of the story. So let's see what the most important part is. But the woman, who's Rahab, had taken the two men and she'd hidden them. And she said to the guards, yeah, the men came to me. I didn't know where they'd come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. But go after them quickly and you might catch up with them. So good. This is, this is the gospel according to Hollywood. I'm waiting for this movie to come out. Uh, but she had taken them up to the roof and had hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan, back to where they thought the Israelite camp was. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Whew. Before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. So she's making a deal with them, just brutally, honestly. Will, will you, based on this faith that I just described and what I know is going to happen, will you protect me? Is what she asks them. And their response, our lives for your lives. The men assured her, if you don't tell where we're, uh, what we're doing, we'll treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And she said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. It's incredible. It's an incredible story, right? So if last week, um, the, the, the kind of the peace or the word that I, I feel like Dave pulled out from the story of Tamar was this picture of hope. And we're going to talk, we've already been talking a lot about hope, but there's a new word for this week, for today, in this story, and it's faith. I want to I spend some time talking about the faith of Rahab. Um, how do we see her faith? What does it teach us about faith in us? And then uh, how does this kind of faith carry us into what we hope and pray and believe our Advent season should be about? What makes Rahab's faith so remarkable, and I'm sure you saw it, is it's completely crazy. Everything about this story, okay, just for a minute, just kind of disengage your head from these Bible stories that we just kind of take them at face value. This is a crazy story. Nothing about what happened, nothing about what Rahab did or the faith that she displayed makes any sense. It's so much so that for, for a long time, scholars have tried really hard to, to, to say that this entire Rahab story was added way later in the Bible. And it was someone coming back in and writing this in as, oh, wouldn't that be cool if we had this in our history? But there's nothing in the text to, to make us see that this is added later. The thing about Rahab's faith and, and her actions that are so crazy is that 
She had nothing to gain by what she did, and she had everything to lose. She was wealthy. She was connected. The market for her business was clearly not going away anytime soon. So why in the world would she hide these no-name desert dwellers that are enemies of her people, that have come from so far away, that have no context or no history for this area, they were probably seen as crazy people who the only stories that, uh, you know, about them that had reached Jericho were that there's this crazy group of nomads that keep going back and forth into the desert, following some God that takes them in circles. Why in the world did Rahab hide the spies? Why did she not say, yeah, they're upstairs, go get them, when the king came to her door? Well, we see, I mean, the, the text tells us why she did it. doesn't really make it any more believable, but in verse 9, she says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. I know that this land is actually already yours, that this city is already yours. She has complete and total faith that the God of the Israelites is the God who's in charge. He's the one that's going to give the Israelites everything they say they're coming to take. It's already a done deal in her mind. There at the very end, one of the most incredible statements made by any person in the entire Bible, given who Rahab was. She says in verse 11, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There's only, other, only a couple other places in Scripture where those phrases kind of, Your God is God, the Lord of heaven above and the earth below. In other words, totally in control. He's the only God. Okay? Rahab as a Canaanite would have followed 10 or 12 other gods. They would have had kind of your typical pantheon of this is the God of the rivers and this is the God of the rain and this is the God of war and this is the God of fertility. What she's saying in effect in this statement is he's the total God. He's the God who excludes the need for any of these other gods that I follow. So she is making a profession of faith right here. Rahab, a foreign prostitute, non-Israelite who would have had no context with the God of Israel whatsoever. One writer said, Rahab speaks without hesitation and asserts unequivocally that all existing power belongs to the God of Israel alone. And nothing can account for Rahab saying those words except a strong faith. That words like that don't just come out of somebody because they're a character in the Bible. She was a human being that lived, that had the same fears, had the same humanity that you and I have, and, and from her lips comes these statements of strong faith. And so the first thing we learn about faith is that it is a gift from God, because there is no other reason to explain why this woman would have said what she said, except that her faith had been given to her by God. You know, the famous Ephesians verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this faith is not of yourselves, it's a gift given to you by God. And so I want to talk about faith for a second. I want to describe faith in this way. I want to describe faith like a dance. There's a few reasons I want to describe it like a dance. Um, specifically, I want to describe faith as a waltz. Okay, I'm a big-time waltzer. I don't know if you all knew. It's a joke. But a waltz does have three steps, I think. Someone nod. Single waltz is a three-step dance. So faith and the faith we see of Rahab in this, in this case is a three-step process. It's a three-step dance of faith. And it's a dance, I'll go ahead and say it, partly because it definitely is nuanced. 
Okay, scripture is very nuanced in the way it talks about faith. Faith is yours. It's something you express. It's something you do. It's an action on your part. And yet at the exact same time, it's a gift from the Lord. All right, so it's a, it's a dance between the Lord and I. Faith is a dance. So the first step of the dance is maybe a little surprising, but hopefully very comforting, and it's fear. Fear is the first step in the waltz of faith. And we clearly see that in Rahab, don't we? Her entire profession of faith, the word fear is repeated four or five times. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and a great fear of you has fallen on all of us, including me, she says. She says, we're melting in fear. Everyone's courage has failed because of you. So the seed of faith is always some sort of fear. It always comes when your faith in yourself is shaken. That's the beginning of true faith, is that when the faith you have, because we all have it, we all have all kinds of faith. Every single one of us lives by faith. The question is, where is your faith? Is it true faith? Is it faith in the one who actually is the God of heaven above and the earth below? And that kind of true faith always comes when fear comes in and it shakes the faith we have in ourselves or the faith we have in other people or the faith we have in our intelligence, the faith we have in our money and what we've earned and our hardworking ability, whatever it is that you put your faith in. When fear comes in and begins to shake those places of smaller faith, then that's when the seed of true faith begins to sprout. Faith starts or faith germinates when you and I begin to feel small, which is what fear does, right? Fear, the reason I fear is when I feel small. When I'm forced to question the places that I've staked my faith, that aren't the Lord. When I, when I begin to butt up against the, the sneaking suspicion that this world that I've created for myself, this system that I use to make myself feel okay is actually built on faulty foundations. Fear comes into that and it shakes it a little bit and I begin to feel small. And then something amazing happens. Fear begins to get transformed when I'm small, when I'm humble, and when the Lord is giving me faith, that's his part in it. Fear begins to be transformed into something called fear of the Lord. Yeah, you know that, that phrase. It's a really confusing phrase in Scripture. For a long time in my life, I didn't like it. I don't want you to tell me that fear of the Lord is actually something I need. That makes me think like the Lord is someone to be afraid of. Hopefully this will help explain. When my fear in my small things that I put faith in, which is usually myself, when they begin to get shaken and the Lord is bringing me faith, what happens is my fear ends up becoming a new kind of fear and it becomes a fear of the Lord, which really it's just an acknowledgement of my smallness and his bigness. That my smallness in my fear actually becomes an amazing gift because I, I'm actually able to lift my head up from myself and, and open my eyes to how big the Lord is, right? Think of Rahab's words, he is God of heaven above and the earth below. Out of her fear and her recognition of how small her and her people are, she is able to now see the bigness of God. And her fear is being replaced with fear of the Lord. She says, I'm small, yes, but I'm only small in relation to God's bigness, God's majesty, God's power, God's love. John Piper, uh, a pastor, says, the only people whose souls can truly magnify the Lord 
are people who acknowledge their lowly estate and are overwhelmed by the condescension of the magnificent God that are overwhelmed by the way that the Lord condescends. He, he, he makes himself small in many ways to come to be with us. That we're overwhelmed by that, and that's the place, that's the fearful, the, the proper fearful place that it's good to have my heart in as the seed of faith. Because what does that fear, that good fear of the Lord, that, that appropriate sense of humility and smallness, what does that lead to? Well, when the Lord's big, it leads to courage. And that's the second step of the waltz of faith. Okay, first it starts with fear, but then it moves into courage. And man, do we see that in the story of Rahab, right? When your fear finds a new object, so I'm not fearing my my circumstances, I'm not fearing my own inability anymore. I'm fearing the Lord, which really means I'm respecting the Lord. So when my fear finds a new object, I become smaller, he becomes bigger, and the natural effect is courage. That I am literally encouraged, right? I'm in, I've got courage put into me by the conviction that I have someone who will fight for me. And an Israelite reading this story would have just read in the previous chapter in the book of Joshua these words from Joshua 1.9. The Lord says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous, God says to Joshua. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. He doesn't say, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. You're a really swell guy. You're a really talented dude, Joshua. Don't be afraid. You got this, man. It's not what the Lord says. He says, I've commanded you, don't be afraid, because I'll be with you wherever you go. I'm big, man. I'm big. You may be small. The fear you feel in yourself might be totally valid, but I'm big. So I'm small turns into I'm ready. That's what we see with Rahab. When I'm, in this, when I'm in the second step of the waltz of faith and my fear is now, I wouldn't say it's gone, but it's also maybe in, in tandem with this courage that I have, now I say I'm ready. And that's what we see with Rahab. In her mind, in her heart, her will said, I'm ready, let's go. And so she hid the spies. It's what gave her that courage to, to instead of turning them in, which would have been by far the safest thing to do, She says, no, I'm going to go hide you and I'm going to lie. I'm going to go out of my way to to deceive these men coming from the king to kill the spies and I'm going to send them in a different direction. I'm going to go so far out of my way. I'm going to go so far out of my comfort zone. I'm going to go go into this place that that seems ridiculous because I'm I'm saying I'm ready. I'm ready, Lord. I'm encouraged by you. And that, again, inevitably, this is just sort of a, a waterfall effect. The third step of the waltz of faith from fear and courage is hope. What we actually see in Rahab and what we see in her story is that she moves from a place of fear to fear of the Lord. She gains courage. She begins to act. And she does all of that because she is now in a place of hope. And we could talk for the rest of the sermon about hope, but, but let's remember what we've been taught before, what Dave even taught last week about hope, that hope isn't just this like wishful thinking. Hope is, an, it, it actually is faith. Hope actually is faith. It's a conviction that what God says, who he is, what he's promised is actually true, and it's worth standing on. It's worth staking my faith in. Hope is looking into the future and bringing it in the present, saying, I'm going to believe by faith, by courage, by my own sense of smallness and God's bigness. 
that what you say is actually going to be true, that I am going to be okay, that this is going to be okay. So I'm small, turns into I'm ready, and then with hope, it now becomes let's go. And we see that with Rahab. In her hope, she says, let's go. Come on, guys, let's do this. What we know about the future of Rahab, uh, in, in Joshua chapter 6, the Israelites come, and it's this incredible story of the Battle of Jericho. The walls come a-tumbling down. Y'all remember that song? Yes, the walls come a-tumbling down, and, and Rahab is saved. Everything that she promises and then that the spies promise her in return comes to pass. She hangs a scarlet cord out the window so that they can tell, oh yeah, this is your house. Somehow maybe, because it says her house was built into the wall, so maybe her house was maybe one of the only parts of the wall that didn't fall down. Again, we don't know so many things, but she's saved, and she ends up becoming, she, she's taken into the nation of Israel because eventually her great, 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 however many great-grandsons is Jesus Christ. That this woman is saved through her faith, through the power of the Lord. She is saved and now brought into this family of Israel. And she, she's, she knows some sense of that. She's saying, let's go. Let's do this thing. I'm throwing my lot in with you and your God. That's why Hebrews can say, the definition of faith is that faith is the assurance of what's hoped for. It just seems so backwards, right? It's, but it's, it's an assurance, a conviction of what's hoped for. It's the confidence of things not seen. So for a second, um, I want to I wanna kind of acknowledge and maybe walk us through the two-step counter to the waltz of faith that I struggle with. It's really just a one step. There's two options in faith. Um, and instead of this waltz of faith, and many times alongside the waltz of faith, I can also be doing this kind of one step. I'll just call it the one-step hop. Okay, this is the one-step hop of rightness. Um, y'all know all the different halls of fame throughout the country, right? Baseball Hall of Fame, where is it? Cooperstown, New York. Basketball Hall of Fame. Where is it? Springfield, I think. Springfield, Massachusetts. I looked these up. I'm the one writing the sermon. I know all the answers. Yeah, Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, there's halls of fame, right, throughout the country to, to commemorate the, the men and women who have just excelled, who have killed it, who have, you know, just been completely successful in all their perspe- you know, respective sports or other things. Well, Scripture also has some uh, halls of fame. Um, has multiple places where it lists these different people. And guess who is listed very often in the halls of fame? At least three different halls of fame within Scripture. Rahab is mentioned because of this one story right here. This is really the only story we have in the entire Scripture of Rahab. And yet Rahab is mentioned in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. She's mentioned in James when the two people in the Hall of Fame that James talks about are Abraham and Rahab. prostitute. In fact, she's always, in all of these halls of fame, she's called Rahab the harlot or Rahab the prostitute, like Winnie the Pooh. Like her middle name is the, (laughs) and her last name is prostitute. In scripture. 
And let me tell you why I think they do that, why the authors of, of, of these different sections of Scripture remind you. Because they want to tell you something about faith that you and I really don't want to believe. That I would much rather live in my one hop of rightness than I would in this three-step waltz of faith. Because Rahab's story is offensive. Because I can be really good at my one hop of rightness. Rahab's deeds were not right. Her, her, her livelihood and vocation was built on sin. Her knowledge was not right. She was the least knowledgeable Christian probably in the history of the Bible. In that moment of her profession of faith, she couldn't have known anything about the God that the Israelites followed. She probably knew more wrong things about religion than she knew right things. So it wasn't her rightness, her, her, her head knowledge that was right. Her status wasn't right. She was a nobody in the hierarchy of what an Israelite and a Jew would have said mattered. She was not a Jew, number one. She was a woman, number two. She was a, a sinner, capital S, sinner, number three. Her status, her, nothing about her in the value system that people would have thought mattered said she was right. And I think this story, the story of Rahab, shows up in all of these halls of faith, and she is remind, or we are reminded that she is a prostitute because what gets thrown up in this kind of sharp contrast is what we like to think and expect about faith versus what's really about faith. And what we like to think and expect about faith is that it's for the good people and the right people. And so Rahab shows up like a, like a blaze of orange in camouflage or a, or a red scarlet letter in a monotone crowd. She's someone that's, that's kind of blaring red light to say, wait a second, your perception of where faith comes from, your perception of how you earn faith is completely wrong. Because what I like to think is I like to think my rightness is what grows my faith. I like to think my rightness is what the Lord uses as his basis for my righteousness. And in fact, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with righteousness, not rightness. And that righteousness is not my own. It's the Lord's. And that's why righteousness and the righteousness by faith that Rahab displayed is really offensive because righteousness has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with God. Jesus, when he was on this earth, he said things like, I came to seek and to save the right people? No those who are lost. He says in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's righteous in the world's version of righteous, rightness. I did not come to call the right, but the sinners to repentance. And so what gives us access to the faith of Rahab is not our rightness, it is the righteousness of the Lord, which actually looks like my smallness my inability, my dependence on him, not my independence from him. And it's why for Rahab and for Abraham, Paul and James, multiple times in scripture can say that it was their faith that was counted to them as righteousness. Their faith, which we already said is something that completely is, is based in someone and something else. That is what's counted to them as righteousness. And so this three-step 
stance of fear leading into courage, leading into hope. It is rewiring our system because you and I love the one hop of rightness. And so when I dance in this, this, this waltz of faith and I, I, I notice and acknowledge my fear when it comes up, I give it to the Lord and I, I you know, allow him and I participate with him in turning it from fear about me to fear of him and I get small, then I gain the courage that, that comes with the conviction of that, then what I'm doing is I'm rewiring the system because what I would much rather do is to run back to my one hop of rightness. What do I got to do? What's wrong about me? How can I hate on myself and make myself feel better because I'm hating on myself for all the things I haven't done? Whatever it is you do, and we do all these things. This, this one hop of, I can, I, I can be right, I can be right, I can be right. And the story of Rahab is saying, wait a second, man, get it right. <laughs> it's not about that. So I hope, um, without me even really saying it, you can see how the story of the coming of a Savior, the inbreaking of light into the darkness, which is what we are celebrating in Advent, is the story of Rahab. And it is your story. Because you and I need a Savior to come after us and pursue us like the spies pursued Rahab. You and I need someone to come from the outside into our fortified city where we think we have all of it together, that we are safe, we're protected because of our rightness. We need someone to come in and say, no, I'm going to pull you out of that. I am going to be the assurance for what's hoped for, the confidence in what's not seen. And you need me to do that. You need me to come and be with you to live as a man so that I can die for you and for your sins, for your continual desire and, and, and fight to be right. I will come and I will die for that. And you need me to do that. And so Advent comes to wake us up from our one hop. It comes to set us back in our place, a place that at the same time, I'm very, very small, but the Lord's very, very big. And so I'm very, very big. In him, I am all the things that I try to be without him. I want to ask you just sort of a charge to leave. I don't know why the Lord, maybe it was because I was reading um, this one particular author and he was, um, he was talking about this idea of keeping secrets. So maybe as, you, as you're leaving to go to the holidays, um, as you're leaving to maybe travel to see family, as you're bringing family in and family secrets, the secrets that are only within your family or family secrets, the secrets you don't want your family to know, is probably in the environment of what your holidays are going to be like. That it would be really tempting, as Rahabs, which we all are, to think that our past or our present, the things, that, the, the places that make us want to run back to our rightness and not accept the smallness that the Lord gives us, it would, it would very, it'd be very tempting to say, those are things I need to keep secret. And I want to call you, maybe just practically, to step out from some of those things. I'm not saying... <laughs> just sort of carte blanche on all your secrets. But think about maybe what are the things, maybe it's just this, what are the things that I'm carrying into this Christmas season that are shame, that are different shames, different secrets that I want to hide? The author I was reading says this, um, 
there's a central paradox within our condition of being human, and it's that we want to be known in our full humanness. We don't want any secrets, but at the same time, we're also more afraid than anything else of being known. So that calls us to keep secrets. We put forth this highly edited version of ourselves that maybe we would all be tempted to do as we move into this holiday season, even if it's just from ourselves. And then he says this. He says, finally, I suspect that it is by entering that deep place inside of us where our secrets are kept that we come perhaps closer than we do anywhere else to the one who, whether we realize it or not, is of all our secrets the one most worth telling. That there actually is a secret in you. There actually is a savior in you who came to deliver you from that place of shame, from that place of maybe I'm not good enough because I'm living based on my rightness. And maybe telling yourself and telling the people in your life this Advent about that secret of Jesus. Um, Maybe that might be what the Lord's calling you into. That of all our secrets, the most telling and the most precious we have is the secret that we have a Savior who came and put his righteousness in us, and that is the basis for our righteousness with the Lord. So step out of hiding, step out of secrets, uh, step out of the one hop, the, the, um, the really wearisome hop of, I can do it right. And pick up, like Rahab, um, a righteousness based in faith in a God who is the God of heavens above and the earth below. We pray. <clears throat> Lord, uh, thank you for um, these stories that I, certainly I couldn't have even written myself. Thank you that scripture is full of stories that force me to wake up <clears throat> And, uh, and see a different story than the one that I love to live in. Thank you for Rahab. Thank you that she is a character in my history that I can look back on, uh, in many ways, the, the, the genealogy of the world, the genealogy of humankind through Jesus Christ and see her as a leaf in that tree. Thank you that um, the story of human history and the story of your pursuit and redemption includes characters like Rahab. That um, most of the time um, represent people that I would never want to consider myself as, and yet at the same time, they are the people that I most need to consider myself like because they're people deeply, desperately in need of a Savior, just like me. So make us all feel our smallness, appropriately. Make us all feel the, the appropriate fear of the Lord that leads us into courage, that leads us into hope. Thank you for sending your son as the ultimate fulfillment of our hope. Pray this in his name. Amen.